Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris, and I am joined today by Drew Davendale. Hello there. So, uh, for no particular reason, uh, we're taking a look at some adaptations of graphic novels. Graphic novels, of course, being the comic book's bigger brother, which uh, can, we hope, uh, give us some rather more mature and adult themes rather than just two CD hunks of meat knocking seven bells out of each other. The ones we picked today uh, deal with some rather more mature themes and uh, content than you might perhaps expect from the likes of uh, your average Marvel tentpole, so... We shall see where we get to with that. Or the Beano. Yes. <laughs> so it's not too many adaptations of Beano's strips, which the, has been a bit of a misstep, really. When do we get into DC Thompson Cinematic Universe? That's what I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> Desperate Dan versus... Poor Willy. Yeah. <laughs> right, shall we kick things off today with a look at American Splendor, which is one of the more recursive adaptations as we've follow Paul Giamatti's Harvey Picard's journey through life and the creation of the American Splendor comics, which are, in effect, his ongoing autobiography, an endeavour complicated somewhat by the real Harvey Picard passing commentary on what's happening at various points. Picard was born and raised on the mean streets of Cleveland and is about as close to the everyman as you can imagine. In the main, we join him after a couple of failed marriages and a long stint as a file clerk, which might be described as a dead-end job in the main, only because Picard himself isn't looking to progress. He's a firm believer in the potential of comic books, still seen as kids' territory back in the mid-70s, but after pitching autobiographical work to his old friend Robert Crumb, the underground artist behind Fritz the Cat, he starts writing what becomes a critically acclaimed, if not hugely commercially successful, series of comics, which, in the fullness of time, leads him to his next wife, Hope Davis's Joyce Brabner. I'm not sure much more of a recap is required. It's the self-described story of Picard and the plucked from real-life supporting cast of his comics and, well, his real life. And it's fascinating, in part because Paul Giamatti and Hope Davis are excellent, uh, particularly Giamatti, of course, uh, but ultimately because the cantankerous old manic of Picard is hugely interesting and captivating. Not that he's 100% sympathetic, who is, but the unvarnished rough edges of his character and his work is what makes it special and also what makes this film special. So, aside from being a terrifically enjoyable film, which is surely enough recommendation by itself, it's also a really good starter argument for the medium being more appropriate to tell a greater message that, and that some real human emotion can be conveyed in the funny papers. I enjoyed this greatly on release, and I must admit I've not really thought about it all that much in the intervening 17 years, uh, but that did mean that I pretty much got to re- rediscover how excellent it was all over again, and you all should do the same. It's very good indeed. Yeah, I watched American Spend in the cinema, almost certainly with you. I really enjoyed it. I bought the DVD immediately on release, and I haven't watched it since. <laughs> because why would I do that? That's weird. <laughs> and I think I enjoyed it as much this time as I remember doing the first time. Yeah. The one thing I had forgotten was just how good Paul Giamatti was, because, well, Paul Giamatti's always excellent. Mm-hmm. But the potential exception of San Andreas... but. That it's not, it's not his fault, really. We'll give him a buy on that one. It's not <laughs> yes. his problem. It is. Yeah, he's he is your proper full-on curmudgeon, Harvey P. Carr, isn't he? Yes, very much so. Um, and to be honest, I can't believe that at least at the point of the film being made, his wife was still with him because mm. <laughs> I think that man could be very, very difficult to live with. Yes, um, in a two-hour. Sort of biopic, sort of documentary, sort of drama. He's quite entertaining, and uh, yeah. you can only imagine what he's like in real life. But uh, yes, twenty four seven might be a bit too much. Yes, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's a 
It's a good film. It, it uses the concept. It's quite meta, and as you said, it's quite recursive yeah. with sort of commentary on what's happening and then the remembrances and then the shifting between whether it's the real Harvey Pekar or Paul Giamatti and then at some mm. point having them both together on the screen. It's um, it's audacious. Yeah. But actually, it, it could quite easily be an absolute mess. It really could. But it doesn't feel like that at all. It uses the the medium of cinema quite well to to kind of capture the the framing of comic books, hmm. as well as just being quite visually inventive with yeah. the way it mixes reality and drawing. And other films have done similar ideas, like Ang Lee's Hulk, just trying to create the the boxes of comic book pages. But this film like really takes that idea and runs with it, really plays with it, and it's just it's a really entertaining film very well made, very well acted about interesting, would be the most diplomatic words to use about Harvey P. And he's definitely that, he's definitely uh, interesting if, you know, kind of obnoxious but not not bad. Yeah. Um, so he makes, he makes for a quite compelling character again, within the two hour limit of this film. Yeah. Outside of that maybe a bit much. Yeah. It's a clever film. Uh, it, it, there's two very obvious traps it could easily have fallen into. It could have felt like incredibly self-indulgent with the way that it's structured, but it avoids that just by being so excellently executed. And it could also have been seen as... It could also quite easily have turned Harvey Pekar into a figure of fun, uh, like the way that, you know, arguably the, the, the bits with um, David Lederman, um has has in being. And it doesn't do that. It treats subjects with, uh, with sympathy as well, because I believe the directors were... Um, documentarians before this mm-hmm. this is like it was their first feature and that kind of shows through it shows they've got a real interest and uh, and respect for the subject of the film and th- that helps greatly in, in making perhaps mainly in making Picar palatable for two hours <laughs> rather than not um, but yes it's a very cleverly structured and very uh, cle- excellently executed film I mean he's not a misanthrope though in the mould of say a Harlan Ellison mm-hmm. um, in the documentary about him Dreams with Sharp Teeth really entertaining <laughs> but you could barely stand to be with him for the length of that film um, yeah. entertaining as that film is and um, fascinating the characters yeah, so he's not like that kind of horrible person Yeah, <laughs> um, I think the just not really anything to do with the film which is that point you mentioned about David Letter and Scott I think had it been a case of Harvey Picard being exploited by him and not mm. knowing it it would be quite different but he knew he was being exploited but he was yeah. also exploiting him to try and get sales of his comic books up so yes, that's true. Yeah. a bit of give and take there one weird thing about this film I will say though is um, and had I actually watched it in the intervening 17 years I, I'd probably have noticed but very very firmly fused in my memory was the idea that R. Crumb was played by Kyle MacLachlan and he's oh, not right. <laughs> uh, no idea where that came from. I mean, yeah. it's not a completely dumb idea. James Urbaniak has, has a passy resemblance to Kyle MacLachlan, but it was so firmly in there. He turned up and said, Oh, that's not him. I wonder maybe he plays the older one or something like that. But that's really weird for that to happen to me. How on earth did that happen? <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's an inventive film. It, it very much could be self indulgent. You're right there. It could go right up its own bum with. Just like trying to be so, like levels of this world, but actually, no, it's just mm-hmm. it's entertaining and it feels like fresh 
Yeah. I don't think I've seen anything quite like it. No, no, definitely not in the, in the reading time, no. So yeah, definitely recommended. But can we say the same about the next film on the list, which is Ghost World? And Drew, yes, we can. You must, you must pass judgment. We, we can say that. Is that it? Yes. Moving on <laughs> from. No, okay. <laughs> yeah. Terry Swigov's Ghost World, adapted from Daniel. I'm going to go with Clovis because I think Clouse doesn't sound right. But my apologies if you are listening, which will totally happen. Um, <laughs> adapted from Daniel Clovis's comic book by Clovis and Svigov himself. Uh, whatever else it does, does something rare and special. A film about two friends who have just graduated high school and who are therefore about 18 years old are played by actors who are 17 and 19 years old at the time of release. What madness is this? It'll never work. See? It <laughs> is possible. It's a miracle. <laughs> and no, I am not going to let go of this bone anytime soon because it really bothers me. And that's because it really matters. <laughs> The two friends are Enid, Thora Birch, and Becky, Scarlett Johansson, lifelong kindred spirits and self-identified weirdo outsiders who are unimpressed by and sneer at almost everything and delight in the odd and unusual, but who are not themselves above the sort of petty prank that one imagines they might have been subject to in high school. One such is calling a number found in the missed connection section of their local newspaper, pretending to be the sought-after woman so that they can see who the poor sap is that turns up to have his day ruined. Said poor sap is Steve Buscemi Seymour, a lovelorn loner with little luck in relationships who bemoans his unpopular passions while being beholden to them. I don't want to meet someone who shares my interests. I hate my interests. (laughs) Soon after his failed date... The disaffected and lonely Enid befriends Seymour, and as that unlikely friendship blossoms and helps Enid to postpone her move into the real grown-up world, Becky slowly becomes more part of that, and their long-held plans, including finding a flat together, begin to unravel. Ghost World is at heart a character piece, and doesn't seem to have a lot to say, on the surface at least, at least setting aside its commentary on popular culture and inauthenticity. But its true story is underneath the slow, sad, but very real ending of our friendship. As with the surface-level events, there's no great drama, no inciting incident, no grand betrayal. There's just the slow drifting apart of two people who have been close for a long time, without malice or rancour. And it's gently heartbreaking, in large part due to its veracity despite having, naturally, bought it as soon as it was available on DVD. <laughs> this sounds familiar at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I watched Ghost World again after seeing it in the cinema, and I'm rather sad about that now. It's just as compelling and affecting a film, and funny, as I remember finding it then. Perhaps even more so now, with more life behind me. There's a lot of ennui, but also a lot of humour and hope, and while some of Edith and Becky's words and deeds are unkind and even cruel, They themselves are written and played as naive and defensive, rather than genuinely nasty. Much of that character comes from the great central performances, and there's plenty of evidence here to explain Scarlett Johansson's career as an actor. But it raises the question of why Thora Birch, who had, of course, also starred in Sam Mendes' multiple award-winning American Beauty just two years previously, of which she was by far the best part, uh, wasn't similarly successful as she has much the larger role and is fully up to it. She's particularly good in her scenes with Steve Buscemi, and their chemistry is very much that of two social misfits finding something they need in the other. Uh, 
There's sexual tension too, but they managed to make it more like, dude, not a good idea, than simply creepy and inappropriate. Zvigov endorses Enid's scathing contempt for the phoniness of those she encounters, ridiculing both the ignorant and the deluded and pretentious, but doesn't let her off and highlights the dangers of her attitude and behaviours. That despite it being a shield against the world, it could leave her painfully lonely or embittered. A ghost, in fact. But there's hope, not least in her youth. And the film ends on a note of potential for anything, even if it's mixed in with the grief of the end of her life as was. It's kind of lovely, really. Yeah, much like yourself, I think I've, I liked this when I first saw it, and I've had a lot of affection for it, but I don't think I've seen it uh, since 2001, was this? Yeah. Yes, let's pretend that's uh, not the case. Yeah. <laughs> It holds a kind of special place in my mind because it's, it was by no means the first independent film I've seen, but in terms of it being like a, a quirky American independent thing that I saw at a cinema on screen, it's, it would be amongst the first. It's certainly one of the few that I kind of quite vividly remember from my, uh, well, sort of still be unique in a days, I guess it would have been then. So it, it, it's kind of had a a place in my heart just for its uh, its status as being a, a little outsider film full of little outsiders and when, when you perhaps feel like an outsider yourself it can, can create those connections and it's good to see um, like nearly 20 years later it's still just really nice it's a, it's a really human film and um, it's got lots of really great character work in it from pretty much everyone uh, throughout the cast obviously great performances both in supporting roles and all the mains, so there's I don't really have an awful lot of criticisms to it. Um, some of the characters, again, perhaps not so much as uh, in American Splendor, but some of the characters are not fully 100% sympathetic, and that's fine, because people generally aren't, particularly younger people who can sometimes be dicks without really thinking about it too much. And, uh, yeah, it just feels like a very believable relationship drama between everyone that's involved and yeah I, I, it, it's just as enjoyable now as it was then uh, it's a really great film the word you used is one that was in my mind very much too Scott is it's human hmm. and while some of it is stylized and the characters are maybe, maybe kind of slightly exaggerated yeah for the most part nobody feels unreal no character feels purely a construction yeah that um that people like this do exist. Um, Particularly when you're talking about American high schools. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and the things that happen to them are on a human scale as well. Like, as I said, there's no great drama or anything. But it's the things that can like, affect people's lives, just the small things, but can they, they add up or that there's more significance to them than maybe you realise at the time. And the film's full of that sort of thing. Yeah. Although, I mean, this is probably very American, but are high school graduations actually sponsored? That struck me as weird. That Tropicana yeah. <laughs> would sponsor a high school graduation. Yeah. Bizarre. Uh, <laughs> I think the only question I have left is I feel there's something in the ending that I, that I don't understand. That I'm not quite sure what they're saying because I'm not sure the ending actually happens. Yes, on the, the bus to nowhere. Um, yeah, on the bus that comes to an out-of-service bus stop and she gets on and doesn't pay or show a pass or anything and gets on leaves the town and she's the only person on that bus. 
this is a metaphorical joint to the future. Okay, I get it, but why is it the only strictly metaphorical thing in the whole film if it is, a, in fact, a ghost bus? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know, I thought the uh, pair of jeans that kept walking past on the sidewalk uh, was also a metaphor for jeans on a sidewalk. It's a very literal metaphor. But, uh, <laughs> yes, no, um, it's, it's a, a peculiar ending. Um, as, uh, thanks, Wikipedia. It is saying that... Uh, People have been saying as a big off that it could be seen as a, a metaphor for suicide, which you didn't get at all. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it is an unusually stylized bit of filmmaking to put in in a film which otherwise is not full of it in that regard. Uh, so yes, a bit of an unusual way to close things off. But I feel it fits. Um, I, I feel having it be so open ended to what's happening in the future kind of works for me because yeah. their characters do I have had come to quite like and think they have a bright future if they choose to accept it so it's nice to not have that prescribed for once I didn't I didn't mind it but yes I can see it being a, bit, a little bit of a sticking block for some people yeah I find that ending quite hopeful actually it's like yeah. the, the ending of a chapter yeah. and going off into new things I, I can sort of see that that maybe yes it was a suicide but I don't really think it fits necessarily it would be a jump from what led up to that point Yes, and it, it, there's I I don't get any particular clues that they'd be that way inclined no, to do anything like that. So, so it's, it seems a bit of a stretch, but because she's yeah. Una's a bit a bit lost, a bit disaffected, but she's not depressed. No, um, she's not despairing or anything like that. So it really would be out of mm. nowhere. It wouldn't fit with the yeah. character at all. Yeah. One other thing that I always remember from this film too, though, it starts off with this brilliant musical number from a Bollywood film called Jan Pe Chan Ho, which is mm-hmm. fantastic, and you will not get it out of your head um, <laughs> if you watch this. I of like coming out of the cinema, seeing this, and um, immediately trying to find that song because it's fantastic. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Entertaining dance at the start too. So. <laughs> Apropos of nothing really, it's just it's another thing on this film I happen to particularly like. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Scott, in the world of ghosts, where would the ghosts have come from? Might they have come from hell? They could have come from hell, which is the next film we're going to talk about. We're almost getting good at this. Uh, yes, <laughs> From Hell. This is an, adap- an adaptation of an Alan Moore joint who didn't like it. I'm as shocked as you are. Um, although, to be fair, he's on much more defensible, <laughs> defensible ground with that opinion compared to some of the other adaptations. Um, yes, yeah, so Death stalks the streets, the streets of Whitechapel with Jack the Ripper. Not, a- let's go back to the idea of Death stalking the sheeps. <laughs> It's a shepherd-based horror movie. Yes, it's basically about mutton. <laughs> Death stalks the streets of Whitechapel with Jack the Ripper cutting about cutting people up. Tasked with stopping the chaos is the salt of the earth working cast inspector Aberline, played here by Johnny Depp, assisted by the rest of London's finest, including Robbie Coltrane's Sergeant Godley. While investigating the friends of the bebutchered deceased ladies of negotiable affection, he meets Heather Graham's Mary Kelly, archetypical feisty hooker with a heart of gold, and naturally the film's love interest. And so it goes, being essentially a police procedural, but with a lead detective that occasionally visits opium dens and has weird visions of the future while strung out on horse. Uh, The trail leads him to the upper echelons of Victorian London, causing frictions with his commander as Aberlein uncovers evidence of this being part of a high-level conspiracy and not some commoner garden serial killer. 
Ultimately, the only remarkable thing about From Hell is how unremarkable it is. Most of the bad isn't all that bad, and it's generally balanced out by the good, which unfortunately is also not all that good. Uh, for example, there's a solid and interesting narrative running through it, although it's ultimately preposterous. Uh, the supporting cast is very good indeed, but balanced out by one of those mid-career debt turns that's closer to an early career debt turn, and an accent that's out of this world, or at least well outside of the Bowbells. Uh, the same, to a lesser extent, can be said about Graham, and the net effect being that I find it a little difficult to take this film's leads particularly seriously. The supporting cast, Coltrane, and all of the Ians, Holm, McNeese and Richardson, uh, fare better, but they're sadly not much more than cameos. It's by no means an awful film, but aside from a feint at something of a Jekyll and Hyde-esque look at the conflict between someone's violent and phlegmatic natures in the endgame, which is explored much less, well, stupidly, in two films coming up, it turns out there's just not an awful lot in From Hell to recommend that you dredge it out of the archives. Certainly the least interesting of the Moore adaptations that I've seen. At least The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen had the decency to be a flaming car crash of a film. <laughs> uh, this is just pretty mediocre. So I, I had to like I was just pausing it for was like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. What did that? Oh right, no, no, no. That's the League of Gentlemen. I'm thinking of with yes. the, <laughs> the giraffe semen. No, yes. <laughs> I know Alan Moore's a bit weird, but I don't think he was that kind of weird. Yes. <laughs> yeah, this film was just it's meh. It's bad, but it's not the sort of bad worth getting bothered about. Yeah. First of all, special anti-plaudits for not having more of Ian Richardson, because if you have Ian Richardson, you basically want to have him as much for the film as you can, because he's fantastic. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I don't remember what, like, about the sort of mystery of the of Jack the Ripper at the time of when I watched the first time if I realised, but this time I'm thinking I must have done, because there's supposed to be a mysterious thing about who Jack the Ripper is a... Yeah, but it sounds exactly like Ian Holm. <laughs> Even like this, knowing from a previous view that it was Ian Holm, it's like, well, no, that's exactly like Ian Holm. I know Ian Holm's voice really well. I've yeah. watched Alien about a thousand times, you know. It's <laughs> yeah, I hadn't seen this before, but I mean, even if it didn't sound exactly like the same, it's like, well, conservation of characters, there's not really much other candidates for it. But then it's got, I don't know, it's trying to do police procedural stuff, but not very well. Um, because he's a rotten detective, Johnny Depp. Yes. And like, you get told, well, the person must be right-handed. And this is also to make you not think about Ian Holm, who's somehow got an actual stroke that he can shake off. Yes. Because um, <laughs> you see, oh, he can't move his right hand, it can't be him. It's because of the power of evil, that's why his <laughs> eyes turn black when he's talking about murdering people. <laughs> yeah, that's a weird visual conceit, isn't it? It's yes. really fixed. It's not it's not apart from the, the visions it's not really supernatural but that's tending that way but um, yeah that he says um it's got to be very handy because the person's throat was cut from left to right surely that depends entirely on where anybody was standing at a given time in which direction they passed the blade yes <laughs> that you're a rubbish policeman depp <laughs> and then like two-thirds of the way through the film he starts investigating the masons but because it's convenient for the plot not because there's actually any evidence that's led up to that at yeah. that point. <laughs> and then, just, I don't know, Ian Holmes' character's motivation is incredibly weak, even for a crazy. Yes. It's it's just stupid. And because, I mean, that's the whole Jack the Ripper thing really captivated people, still does. Even though the number of deaths um, associated with this person or persons isn't actually all that high. Certainly compared to other serial killers, but you know, really captivated the imagination. It's 
persisted for 120 odd years or something now. Yeah. And because there were the hints that it was somebody associated with the royal family or like in the upper levels of society. Can't get enough um, quotes around, quote marks around upper there, but uh, <laughs> there's a really interesting idea in that you could actually do something interesting with that. And this film completely fails to do that. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, and I've seen worse films, but this is incredibly unremarkable, as you say, in most regards. Yeah, it just doesn't do all that much of, of interest. It's, it's, it's all right, but why? <laughs> what? Why dig it out at this point? Um, I I just hadn't seen it. I thought <laughs> and I thought I would quite like it at some on some level, and I kind of don't. So yeah, yeah. not not the one to bother yourself with. I remember not liking it quite a lot when I saw it the first time, and this time I was more just say, yeah, a bit of crap. Yes. <laughs> Next, fair enough. Let's change gears. Uh, Road to Perdition, slightly better film on a number of levels. Nineteen thirty-one, Chicago, a splendiferous time if you're a gangster. Or want to make a gangster movie. An adaptation by David Self of Max Allen Collins and Richard Pierce Rayner's graphic novel, Sam Mendes wrote a tradition as a story of family, betrayal and vengeance. The Chicago Way. Tom Hanks plays Michael Sullivan, an enforcer for an Irish mafia family headed by Paul Newman's John Rooney. Michael is efficient, loyal and trustworthy. Unlike Rooney's own son, Connor, Daniel Craig, a noted screw-up. Indeed, it seems that Michael, who was raised by Rooney after being orphaned, is more beloved by the old man than his own flesh and blood. This is put to the test, though, when Michael's own son, Michael Jr., witnesses Connor executing an associate. Despite Sullivan's vow that his son can keep a secret, the younger Rooney kills Sullivan's wife and younger son, and the other two only escape by luck. In the end, blood wills out, and Mr. Rooney chooses to protect Connor causing Michael and his son to have to flee. An unsurprisingly pissed off Sullivan wants revenge and starts robbing banks and taking only and specifically the money being held for the Capone organisation under whose protection Connor is now living in the hope of trading money for blood. Father and son bond during this time and Michael Jr. is forced to grow up and put aside childish things at an accelerated rate but a rate which will be suddenly reduced if Jude Law's creepy hitman Harlan Maguire gets to them first. While American Splendour of the films in this episode is the most overt in trying to evoke its printed origins, Road to Perdition is the strongest in terms of trying to capture the mood and tone of its source, with numerous sumptuous and moody scenes brought to life by storied cinematographer Conrad L. Hall, most famously the rain-soaked nighttime street of the film's climax. It's a beautiful film, and it's a shame that there's not a little more substance underpinning it. Perhaps it's because of its prose-like origins that it lacks the heft of more literary peers like The Godfather et al., but it certainly sorely misses any introspection by the main character about the life he's chosen and his complicity in the hurt done unto his family. It's certainly possible to have an unrepentant, amoral gangster at the heart of your film, witness the Irishman, but that film still showed self-reflection. Even if Frank Sheeran stared right into that reflection and thought, yep, fine with that. It doesn't even seem to acknowledge it, and it's almost as if Tom Hanks was cast so as to shortcut it all together and lead the audience directly to relatable family man at heart. Paul Newman, in one of his final roles, is magnificent, electrifying, 
And I'd love it if there were much, 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 much more of him in this film. It's not his character's story, but he's just so damn good. And while I like Tom Hanks, I think he's often very watchable, in Road to Perdition, he's just too... Tom Hanks. He's not bad, but I just struggled to buy him as the cold, aloof father, and absolutely don't buy him as the hardest nails mob enforcer. Simple ability and competence mean that he's considerably better than many might be in the role, but Hanks is woefully miscast and undermines the film. It requires someone more like Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven, a film with which Road to Perdition shares a few notes, not Forrest Gump. I'll mention Hall's cinematography again, as it really is lovely, and Sam Mendes' shot compositions are well considered and often striking. Visually, he's generally on the money, but Perdition highlights a certain lacking in emotion and character. It's a good, but far from great film that's still very watchable, so if you haven't seen it, you could do worse than so do. It also, though, really, really doesn't need the narration. Go away, lazy device. You're not welcome round here. <laughs> yes, um, I liked Road to Perdition back in the day, mainly because it has Tommy guns in it. And at the time of my life, you're still a young man. Any film with Tommy guns in it, I'm going to like. <laughs> that phase of my life has lasted until about, well... Probably until I die. So I still like this an awful lot because it's still got Tommy guns in it. Yeah, I like it a lot. I can certainly see what you're saying. It's, it is a bit more lightweight if you're going to compare it to uh, some of the bigger, longer, weightier gangster epics. But I think there's a, a, pl- a time and a place for this, and I still really enjoy it an awful lot. Um, I don't, I don't get the same miscasting vibe you have with um, Hanks in this. I think it does perfectly well here. I'm happy enough with him, him in this role. It is. I think you're right. It is almost stunt casting to try and uh, convince you he's a, a sympathetic and relatable uh, family guy because he's Tom Hanks rather than because of anything that the character inherently does or doesn't do in terms of this film. Maybe that's lazy, but uh, I don't know. I, it, it, it didn't bother me that much. And uh, as you say, completely agree. it looks absolutely gorgeous uh, very frequently. In fact, there's, I don't think there's a bad shot in this whole film. It's, it's a really well uh, well-envisioned film looks lovely and uh, I enjoy it it's by no means a deep story with by no means with deep character but it has enough enough style and just enough substance and enough expertly paced scenes to keep it keep it very interesting for me for all the way through so I, I like this stuff a lot um, sounds like a bit more than you do um, not an absolute god tier of film but uh, yeah still really enjoyable and uh, I wholeheartedly recommend it to anyone who has not seen it. Man, I like it a lot. It's like when I was logging it in my um, letterbox diary, just like give a track of the films I've watched, still rated like four out of five, which is what I would have mm-hmm. done on release. I still like it. It's just that I am more aware now of of its failings. And Hank Hanks is one of the two big problems. And what because he starts the film as Tom Hanks, and midway through the film he's Tom Hanks, and he ends the film as Tom Hanks. I don't think his character goes anywhere. Yeah. And I think with a different actor, that would have been quite different. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I said, it's like, there's no, it's like maybe tied into it a bit, but it's more a problem with the writing, is that there's no self-reflection of that character at all. At no point does he seem to think, well, this is entirely my own fault for doing this job and getting bringing these people that I love into it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I say it's still enjoyable. I just I just wish it had a bit more body to it. Yeah. 
No, I, I can I can certainly see that. Yeah, yeah say, absolutely. I would recommend people watch it. It just looks so nice. That again, there probably isn't a scene that doesn't look really nice, but there are a couple that really stand out. There's that. Um, it's like one of the final scenes actually. The on the house in the ocean. Yeah. When it's like playing about with reflections and stuff. Yeah. It's so well composed and shot. And actually, it tells a story as yes. well. And then, yeah, there's the, that scene, the climax in the street with the just Thomas Newman's score playing and the heavy, heavy rain mm-hmm. that looks like it's, it should be in black and white and it isn't actually, but it may as well be. Yeah. Um, it's just it's really, really good looking. So, yeah, it's still a very good film. It's just that it, it's one of those films that... It's not like I think it's bad, it's more like I wish it was better, I want yeah. it to be better, it deserves to be better. I find it <laughs> disappointing in that way rather than, well, this wasn't any good, you know? Yeah, it's disappointing that it's only very good rather than... Great, yeah. Great, yeah. That's <laughs> about the size of it. So, how do I link Road to Perdition to our next film? Badly, obviously. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can't. Because <laughs> there is no linking at all. Scott, our school confidential... Yes, this is the second of our Terry Zwigoff Daniel Close 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 joints. Um, art School Confidential sees Max Mengele's Jerome go to where else? An art school, Strathmore, with the self-stated aim of becoming the world's greatest artist. His game plan is thrown off when he falls for Sophia Miles's Audrey, an art model, and by his fellow students not appreciating his classical depictions as much as the more experimental works, such as from Matt Kessler's Jonah, who soon becomes a professional and romantic rival. Oh, and all this plays against the subplot of an ongoing series of on-campus murders that, inevitably, will intersect with Jerome's life. It shares more than a few strands of DNA with Ghost World, to be sure, a less than entirely sympathetic protagonist, a black tending towards cruel sense of humour, and it certainly has moments where it's almost as good as Zweigoff's previous film. However, not all that many of those moments and the points in between are, well, not bad, perhaps, but not all that remarkable. Primarily, I think the difference is in our protagonist. I, I find Ghost World's Thora rather more relatably confused, whereas Jerome seems to confuse John Malkovich's Professor Sandiford's advice to be his authentic self with just being a prick for a little reason. And while this, that's set up at the start of the film with the advice from Adam Scott's douchebag art world celebrity, uh, it is still just being a prick for no reason. Uh, I'm sure his initial very narrow definition of what constitutes proper art will hit a chord with many, and this is intended as part as a satire of the art world, uh, but Jerome has the same mindset for the artist as well as the art, uh, and he seems incapable of showing empathy for others, so in turn, we're not all that minded to show him any empathy. Uh, but this isn't dealt with enough for it to be a feature rather than a bug. It's diet Brechtian, just one calorie, not Brechtian enough. A familiar flavour, but none of the sugar rush. The same is true to an extent of Ghost World, but it's somehow less of a concern there, probably because I had better lead actors. As such, it's just tough to care about the central character's emotional struggles, which cuts out the entire heart of this film. There is, however, enough going on around the edges that it's not a complete washout. Uh, the supporting cast is pretty good, from established hand like Malkovich, Angelica Houston, Jim Broadbent, Steve Buscemi, and also the younger cast like Ethan Suplee and Joel Moore. Uh, the slasher subplot is not exactly high on the believability index, but it does make for a handful of fun scenes towards the end of things, which do a bit of papering over the failure of this film's central thrust. But, ultimately, it's just not all that remarkable. Uh, while planning out this episode, I did wonder how this had sailed by me completely, given that I rather like Ghost World, uh, but I now 
see why. It's nothing like as awful as its Meta Tomato ratings or its box office flop statings would portend, but even with as much generosity as I can muster, this isn't really a film I can recommend, with the possible exception of those either in or having escaped from art school. Yeah, it's um, it's okay. I, mean, I was reasonably entertained by it, but it's mm. it's not special. It doesn't make a mark the way the ghost world does. No, it doesn't, does it? No, it's... Um, Svigoff and Clovis really are down on art and artists and, and the <laughs> art world, aren't they? It's, yes. Ooh, it's... Um, Let's say it's quite sharp. Yes, it is not a subject that a film that is treating its subjects with the same level of respect <laughs> that American Splendor did, no. Well, it's a bit... You're in a bit of rocky ground there where you're an artist yourself to start re-criticising all other art, basically, and all artists. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope you realise that this is going to go both ways, but yeah, yeah. it's um, not really pulling any punches there. They're, they are pretty hard on this lot. Yes. It's... Um, yeah, it's going because there's, there's certainly elements of that satire of the pretentiousness of art and artists and art critics and stuff in yeah. Ghost World, particularly with Ileana Douglas's character. Yeah, uh, but th- this whole film's that basically. Yes, <laughs> and yeah, th- another big problem is you say Scott says that central character. It's just like he's just an ass hat. Yeah, he's not likable. I know there's far more interest in Ethan Supley's character actually. Yes. Because <laughs> um, here's a character that's just a changes for the better. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, um, uh, there's still bits of humour in there and there are bits that look nice, but it's just, even just visually, it just feels flatter than yeah. Ghost World, which is the obvious thing to compare it to. And then you've got that serial killer subplot, which where a man gets dragged into. It's like, yeah, you're getting to this. I assume this only exists just to get to that ending. Yeah. <laughs> um, because none of it makes sense. Like, you've got this um, very intimate painting of a victim with her actual ID card on it. Why are you not suspicious? Are you meant to be that stupid? Yes. And if a character's <laughs> meant to be that stupid, then I don't care what happens to that character. Um, <laughs> that and the convenient fire. No, it's. Yeah, it's not one I could recommend at all. I don't regret having watched it. It's not a bad film. It's just. It's, it seems yeah. like mostly have taken the kind of the acid from Ghost World and made that the whole film. Yeah. Which is, it hasn't really worked very well. Yes, it it is quite unbalanced. I'm disappointed with this mainly because I'd expected a bit more given the, how much I like Ghost World and the people behind it. And it it, it doesn't deliver. It, It delivers bits of it at points just enough to kind of remind you that they've made better films uh, in the past, which is (laughs) annoying. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's not a film I have a great deal to say about then, Scott. Uh, what I will say is this film, the biggest beef I have with this film uh, is a suggestion that Stella Artois is some sort of exotic beer. Yes, that must be an American thing. A, yeah. The same same people that think Heineken's a, a fancy foreign beer as well. Like, mm. Heineken's <laughs> okay. disgusting. Yes. But, um, but yeah, Stella Artois, known in this country as wife beater, <laughs> it's not special, not exotic. So, no. um, any Americans listening, please disabuse yourselves of that notion. I'm not, I mean, if you like it, fine. Not exotic, not special. <laughs> uh, although, you know, at least better than Budweiser. But then, what isn't? Yes. Yes. Are we done on that film, Scott? 
Yes, I don't think of anything more to say about that, so crash onwards to round things out with the history of violence. Yes, A History of Violence, based on the 1997 graphic novel of the same name by John Wagner and Vince Locke, and adapted for the screen by Joss Olsen and directed by David Cronenberg. It begins with a couple of drifters, Greg Brick and the wonderfully bevoiced Steve McHaddy, committing an act of gratuitous violence at the small Midwestern motel. This bellicose duo will soon find a way to the small, sleepy town of Millbrook, Indiana, we will also find Tom Stahl, Vigo Mortensen, living the idyllic small-town life with his wife Edie, Maria Bello, and his two children. Each day after family breakfast, Tom makes his way into work, a small diner in the town's main street. You know, that's not a place where everything seems to be as you imagine it's been for approximately 50 years now. <laughs> One day will be radically different, though. Into his diner after closing time come the duo from the opening scene like a latter-day Dick Hickok and Perry Smith, as eager to hurt people as they are to rob the business. Despite Tom readily offering up all of the money he has, the duo intend to murder one of his employees to demonstrate just how repugnant they are. But using a coffee pot as a weapon, Tom incapacitates one before a brief scuffle in which the two robbers are dead and the minorly injured diner owner is a national hero, at least for the length of the news cycle. His heroics have brought him unexpected attention, though, and Ed Harsey's Carl Fogarty, a made man in the Irish Mafia in Philadelphia, visits the diner, claiming to know that Tom is in fact not Tom, but a mobster named Joey Cusack. Tom swears this to be a case of mistaken identity, but when Fogarty's brief campaign of intimidation ends in gore and death, the truth is revealed and Tom slash Joey... Toey? Toy, <laughs> must go to Philadelphia to deal with his history of violence and possibly lose everything dear to him as a result. The violence depicted in a film called A History of Violence is almost matter of fact. Feral, brutal, grotesque, but over in moments. There's no slow motion, no stylistic shooting, no lingering shots of the hero roundhouse kicking an opponent or emptying a magazine. Though during the small moments of violence we're brought into it, complicit in it, as we, the audience, want to see these villains punished. The shots that linger, though briefly, are on the results. The dead bodies, the changed or ended lives, the effects of the violence. And while there certainly is gore, and a history of violence is very much an adult film, there's a perhaps surprising lack of damaged bodies from one of the progenitors of the body horror genre. <laughs> Indeed, David Cronenberg's direction and stylings are quite subtle and light of hand, and that plays a large part in making unclear for a long time if Tom is Joey, or if it truly is a case of mistaken identity. Just don't think about the title. <laughs> Bit of a giveaway, that. But <laughs> the charisma and likability of Vigo Mortensen help much in this regard too, of course. He never looks 100% comfortable in the small Indiana town, but... Is that because he dreamed of something bigger and regrets the small scale of his life and his achievements? Or is it because he truly doesn't belong there? For two-thirds of the film, it's ambiguous. But the biggest disappointment I have with the film is that the question is answered too early. With a final act in Philadelphia that feels quite generic, and a frankly less than stellar performance from William Hurt, notably lacking in the menace that Ed Harris brought to the film's middle portion. That final act also takes Mortensen away from the similarly excellent Bellow. 
As an aside, apart from Prisoners, I think the only time I've seen her in the past decade is the visible The Fifth Wave, and that's criminal. Hmm. Uh, Though the film at least reunites them and finishes on uncertainty, and in an ambiguous meeting of eyes between the two. Leaving us to the question of whether or not his history of violence is indeed history, or whether it will cost him all that he fought for. There's fun to be had here too with Howard Shore's score, which begins in Millbrook with strains that call to mind the carefree days of the Hobbits in the Shire and the Fellowship of the Ring score that he also wrote, before transitioning into something broodier and darker as Tom's life begins to fall apart. Mortensen and Cronenberg would go on to even greater things in their next collaboration, Eastern Promises, but the history of violence is a taut and rewarding thriller, let down only by its need to resolve the mystery. How much more satisfying would it have been to never answer the question of Tom's identity? Yeah, yeah, I could see that happen. Um, I, I could see that perhaps being a, a, a more intriguing ending, but I've got to say I'm very happy with what's been <laughs> served up to me with history of violence. I, I think it's a very great film. I, I, not one of these films that I knew intellectually that I, I liked, because I remember liking it, but I couldn't remember quite how much I liked it until I started to watch it again. It's like, oh yes, this is actually really good. Um, to agree, it might have been a... Cronenberg's first attempt at a sort of a straight story-esque um, Lynch one, because it, yeah, it, it doesn't feel an awful lot like the kind of stereotypical Cronenberg uh, experience, apart from a couple of shots of the, the aftermath of the violence, like, mm. like you say. I really, really liked it. Um, I think Viggo Mortensen was a revelation in this. Uh, he's really good. Um, William Hurt's yeah, I kind of agree. The, the, the last act's a bit flat, and largely that's because William Hurt's there, and he's just kind of he's kind of set up to fail anyway because it's a character that's parachuted in at the last minute. Um, just yeah, for those maybe ones. one mention of before that or something, I think. Yeah, and there's no real there's no real backstory to the relationship that he's got with uh, Viggo Mortensen's character. There's there's never really feels like much of a connection between them at any point in it as well, mm. um, which I, I suppose is kind of part of the point, but it also doesn't really help. So, yeah, that, that does perhaps not match up to the, the quality of the rest of the, the film, uh, but the two acts that go in front of it are so good that I'm willing to forgive it uh, a slight misstep in the final one. Uh, that I still really, really enjoy this. I thought it was a hugely uh, well adapted from the, the John Wagner story. Yes, it's also very stylishly looking film as well. Most of it's shot very well. The, the brief spurts of action are really well handled and uh, nice and crunchy. <laughs> yeah, I think there's an awful lot of leg in here and uh, yeah, I, I would certainly recommend it to anyone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do think is it Eastern Promises is an even better film, mm. but that doesn't mean this isn't also a great film. I really enjoy True. this film. Yeah. I just... I think that final act stops it being a bit more special. It's just the sort of setting and just like what happens. You know exactly what's going to happen. There's no surprise in it. Yeah. And because there's no character payoff between William Hart and Viggo Mortensen, it doesn't really do much that final act. So it's the whole thing just feels quite flat. Um, yeah. Whereas like that two or three minutes at the end of the final act when he comes back to the house. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's more in those three minutes than there's in the preceding 30 or 20 or 30 so yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that that's still broadly following the graphic novel but I really I like the idea of like if you don't really know or at least maybe his family are never quite sure yeah yeah there's something appealing about the idea of not just packaging that up yeah um, particularly given the 
given the sort of chemistry and the talent between uh, Maria Bello and Frankie Morrison, that relationship is it does feel under underexplored because they work so well together. And yeah, uh, yeah. so yes, I can I can see that at least. Yes, certainly. Yeah, or I mean, there's there's a few things that if like I mean it's the way that the Carl Fogarty act come uh, arc comes to an end is it's an inflection point of the film it, it's um, it's where the truth comes out and if you yeah. maybe so maybe you test that a bit more because Ed Harris is so menacing in this film as he so yeah. often is even when he's like playing a good guy there's still something not always menacing but there's something like a power about him yeah. Um, whereas yeah William Hart there's, there's nothing between them whereas you establish quite quickly even if you haven't been told about his eye there's already there's just maybe some more chemistry or something but there's immediately something between Viggo Mortensen and Ed Harris there that's like it's just going with that one a wee bit more there's yeah. so many wee things like just I don't know just slight tweaks here and there just elevated that that wee bit further um, and I, I'm vaguely frustrated by that because yeah. um, <laughs> it's like, just this wee wee uh, when I've no idea what that noise was meant to indicate. Sorry, <laughs> you just do one or two wee things differently, and I just think you, you just have a, a better product. I mean, and it's only like a ninety-five minute film. It's really, really tight, yeah. really well edited, and it's, it doesn't. Uh, it's not any longer than it needs to be, but it's still even that. The, like any conversation with William Hart adds nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So again, it's another one of those films that I'm vaguely frustrated. Not that it's bad, it's just like, it could be better. Yeah. It's really good, but it could be better. <laughs> How dare you only be very good. Yes. <laughs> you utter swine. <laughs> so that'll wrap us up for today then. Um, if they want to get in touch with us for this or any other reason, then please do so uh, on the Twitters. We're there at FudsOnFilm, Facebook at Facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm or through email at podcast at FudsOnFilm.com And yeah, so... I shall bid you adieu, and uh, until next time, take care of yourself and each other. And Drew, if you'll echo those sentiments too. I echo those sentiments. <laughs> Very well.